The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Oh boy. Do you remember these guys? The beautiful, beautiful men with their handsome faces, long, flowing hair, synchronized dance moves in their shoulder-padded jackets. They conquered MTV with their catchy tunes and won a Grammy for their album. Except... Wait. What's... Gar? Gar... We're supposed to have a record scratch there, Gar. What what sound effect are you using? Can we... Okay, stop, stop, stop. Let's try this again. Stop. Just That's not a record scratch. Let's try this again. Bring up the music. We'll just edit it in and add a record scratch, please. They conquered MTV with their catchy tunes and won a Grammy for their album. Except... Gar, Gar, what is Gar? A record scratch. It's very simple. It's like producer 101. You play, no, no. You play a song and it comes to a halt. It's right there in the script, Gar. Are you reading the script? No, no. It's not record scratch. It's record scratch. Like a vinyl record. Okay. Can you... What's your name? Okay. We're going to put an intern in charge of this car. Okay? You. Yep. You sit at the board. Record scratch. You get it, right? Okay, let's go. They conquered MTV with their catchy tunes and won a Grammy for their album. Except... You have to understand, we were seduced, we were abused, and we felt very guilty. That's the tune Millie Vanilli is singing now that the pop duo has been exposed for never singing a note on a Grammy award-winning album that sold more than 7 million copies. As they return the Grammy for Best New Artist, already revoked by the music industry, the two singers claim they are the victims of a former producer who coerced them to go along with the scam. We wanted to be stars. We wanted to get up on top. So suddenly this guy gave us a chance, so we took it. We were scared. People threatened us. We have evidence for that, and we're happy that it's over, you know? They presented no evidence of those threats, but they did release this tape as evidence they can really sing. <laughs> Unconvinced that wasn't more electronic enhancements, reporters asked for a live performance. Girl, you know it's true. I love you. I'm in love with you, girl, because you're on my mind. You're the one I think about most every time. Not only did the music industry want its Grammy back, fans want their money back for bogus albums and lip synced concerts. Lawsuits have been filed this week in California and Illinois. I think it's terrible that people spend their hard-earned money for things that aren't. They're, they're fakes. You don't know what you're getting anymore. Mm, oh, man. Poor Millie Vanilli. And the poor fans.
You don't know what's true. You don't know what you're getting anymore. Girl, you know it's true. No, no. You don't know what's true. That's the tragedy. Girl, you know it's true. Girl, you know it's true. Mm, we're looking at great literary hoaxes today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature podcast. I'm so happy you joined us today. Great literary hoaxes. How about that? What a fun show. We're doing this in two parts. Today will be ancient hoaxes, everything from the beginning of time to 1900 or so. Then we'll look at 20th century hoaxes to the present day in another episode. It's interesting. As we'll see, the hoaxes change reveals something about our literary landscape as the hoaxes change, how we use books, how we think about books, how we buy books. You can see the changes as you track the hoaxes over the years. And these are just some great stories. A lot of ruffians and 'er ne'er-do-wells, a few geniuses, a few sad and misguided hoaxers. Some extremely ambitious hoaxers I can't wait to dive in. We heard some Milli Vanilli at the start of the show. That story rocked the music world. And not in the way that the music world likes to be rocked. Also, it rolled the music world. It was rock and roll. Who Who writes this stuff? Fire the interns. Speaking of the interns, although one of them saved us at the beginning. Thank you very little, Gar. Hmm? Maybe you should learn from the interns instead of infecting them with your lack of knowledge. Speaking of interns, let's hear from one of our patrons. Dear Jack, thank you for all the work you put into my favorite podcast by Miles. Best Mahmood. P.S. I wanted to email you earlier to tell you you should hire the intern who wrote the surprise bonus question on episode 140 on Pulp Fiction. It was great, LOL. (laughs) Thank you, Mahmood. Thank you for the kind words. Yes, we are lucky to have some good interns who do good work, including that surprise bonus question on episode 140 with our interview with Charles Ardai, the publisher of Hard Case Crime Books. I think that was the one where the intern got completely carried away and sort of ran off with the show. The question was about five minutes long, but we're lucky to have them working for free. Unlike someone else in the room. And we're lucky to have some great patrons like Mahmood. I'm glad you're enjoying the show, Mahmood. And I'm very grateful to you and all the other patrons who have gone to patreon.com slash literature and signed up for the cause. Some good news for you, Patreons. We have started a gift-giving program to people who have signed up to donate whatever they can by PayPal or by credit card. Last month, we had a book by our guest, Ronica Dard, giveaway and a History of Literature mug. This month, it's a copy of Lectures on Russian Literature by the great Vladimir Nabokov in honor of our Tolstoy episode and an Amazon gift certificate for a book of your choice. That's patreon.com slash 
literature. On we go to literary hoaxes. Authors have long been drawn to the ideas of tricksters. We see them around the world in world literature and folktales and fiction, whether it's the African spider trickster Anansi or Br'er Rabbit or the coyotes in Native American mythologies. Dionysius, the Greek god of wine, madness and ecstasy, was a shapeshifter who would take on other identities. Loki is a cunning shapeshifting god who we all know now thanks to the Marvel movies. Prometheus tricked Zeus and stole fire on behalf of mankind. Odysseus, of course, of the Odyssey, was himself kind of a trickster. The Trojan horse was his idea, and he tricked his way through all kinds of scrapes as he made his way home. Pan was a trickster, and Shakespeare's Puck, and Jack of Beanstalk fame, and Sun Wukong, the Chinese monkey king. Bugs Bunny is a good trickster. We see them all over. Herman Melville wrote a classic trickster-comes-to-town story in his novel The Confidence Man, which tells the story of a stranger who sneaks on board a Mississippi steamboat on April Fool's Day. He attempts to earn the confidence of various passengers and the reader as well. Speaking of Mississippi, how about Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer hoaxing everyone into painting the fence? And some people have noted, well, isn't all of literature just a hoax? It's all make-believe. It's all made up. There are unreliable narrators, but even reliable narrators are lying to us, aren't they? What does a literary hoax even mean? How can you be upset that fiction is a fiction? Well, we'll see. That's not exactly what we're talking about today. We're talking about those cases where the books themselves are the subject of the hoax, and people who buy the books or learn about them feel cheated, they feel fooled, they get angry. Some lines you just cannot cross. But determining where those lines are is a fascinating topic. I have four categories here. We'll jump into all of them after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. 
Our first category is forgeries of great works, works by famous authors. This has a close cousin in the art world, of course, the masterpiece hidden in the closet or found in the attic or purchased for pennies at a yard sale. Some rare manuscript hidden among other pages, tucked away somewhere, not looked at for decades or centuries, believed to be not worth the paper it's printed on, just some old, tattered, faded copy, unless, of course, it happens to be lost pages from Leo Tolstoy or Jane Austen, or the subject of our first forgery, William Shakespeare. In the 18th century, a 19-year-old Englishman named William Ireland, whose father was a rare book dealer, made an astonishing discovery. Dozens of love letters, unpublished manuscripts, and annotated volumes, all written by William Shakespeare. Where did he find this incredible bounty? In an old chest given to him by, quote, an anonymous friend, end quote. How exciting is this? We still talk about this, lost works by great masters. We know Hemingway lost a suitcase full of early stories. I'm surprised someone hasn't tried to claim they've found it. He's so easy to imitate and parody. I found the suitcase. Here are the stories. Maybe someday we'll get that. Shakespeare, a little tougher to get right. As the world marveled at the news of this new treasure trove of Shakespeare's works and eagerly awaited its release, William Ireland got to work. Coming soon, he announced, we will be staging the long-lost masterpiece Vortigern and Rowena by William Shakespeare. Meanwhile, a literary expert named Edmund Malone published an essay proving that all of the Ireland discoveries were actually fakes and forgeries. William Ireland nevertheless pressed on with his play. The play came out, and it was terrible. The audience hated it. Critics hated it more. No one thought it was by Shakespeare. It was so bad. The production shut down after one performance, and Ireland confessed to everything. The only one, the only person who refused to believe him was William's father. He insisted that this could not be true. It could not have happened this way. And he refused to believe even his son's confession. Not because he thought the plays were actually real. And not because he thought his son was too honest or virtuous to have pulled off the scheme. No. Instead, he went around telling everyone that his son couldn't have forged those works by Shakespeare because he was too stupid. To have done so. <sighs> William Ireland wasn't the only hoaxer in the 18th century. In 1760, a professor named James McPherson of the University of Edinburgh claimed he had gathered fragments of poetry dating back to the 3rd century, providing evidence that a Gallic epic tradition had existed and rivaled the epics of ancient Greece. The best of all the poets was named Ossian, the Celtic Homer, the son of a mythic Irish hero. Scotland, claimed Macpherson, was as rich in literary history as Greece or Rome. Thomas Jefferson was among those who were floored at the thought 
This rude bard of the North, he announced, is the greatest poet that has ever existed. Goethe was a fan, and Thoreau and Mendelssohn, not just because of their analysis of the poetry, but of the idea of Ossian, the bard who lived in nature in a simpler time, and who was not part of the highly civilized Greek and Roman culture, but who had grown out of the peoples of the North, the quote-unquote barbarians, from whom many Europeans and Americans derived. It launched all these feelings of nationalism and folklore and nostalgia, and what we now think of as romantic qualities like the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. Napoleon slept with a copy of Ossian poems at his bedside. The poems were a huge international success, translated into many languages and sold across Europe. Romanticism was sweeping into Europe at this time, which helped. However, Samuel Johnson, Dr. Johnson, one of our heroes here at the History of Literature podcast, read the poems and was not impressed. Johnson's pal Boswell loved Ossian and even raised money to help McPherson conduct further research. Johnson took one look, one quick read, and saw right through them. McPherson, he announced, is a mountebank, a liar, and a fraud. Johnson said, this verse doesn't sound like what a third-century poet would write. It sounds like what a contemporary writer, drunk on romanticism and Scottish pride, would think a third-century poet would write. The story didn't end there. Johnson went to Scotland to examine the original manuscripts to prove that they were fake. He couldn't find any. Macpherson grew hostile. He sent Johnson a threatening letter, and Johnson began sleeping with a stick in case Macpherson broke into his house and attacked him in the night. Eventually, eventually Professor Macpherson produced some originals, but it was clear that these were works that Macpherson himself had written in English and clumsily translated back to Gaelic. After his death, scholars went through Macpherson's papers and the whole thing fell apart. But we learn two things from the example. Yet again, we see this. Johnson is probably the clearest-eyed critic in the history of literature. We argue with him at our peril. But also, we see how eager the public was to have an Ossian, to believe in an Ossian, and it tells us a lot about the Romanticism that was soon to overtake Europe, and also the Scottish nationalism, which probably helped fool Boswell and many others. The time was right for Scottish and Irish invaders to long... Sorry, did I say invaders? <laughs> the, t- <laughs> the time was right for Scottish and Irish readers to long for something outside the English tradition, something even older, even better, something that was there. And in fact, Macpherson did draw a lot of the ideas and verses from Scottish ballads, which were being handed down orally. So, Although Ossian didn't exist, there was no 3rd century Virgil running around the highlands. But there were ballads and other folk songs that deserved to be recorded somehow. If maybe they should have had a more legitimate vehicle. 
We'll stay in the 18th century. And maybe let's just talk for a minute about why the hoaxes were so prominent in that century. Printing was not new, but it was more widespread. Books and pamphlets and other forms of print could be sold and purchased. That meant there was money to be made. And as we'll see again and again, writers and publishers get frustrated sometimes. Who will buy my stuff? No one. But would they buy it if they thought it was older or more important or by someone else? Their minds start racing with the possibilities. But not all of our hoaxes are just a cash grab, a sheer mercenary act. McPherson certainly had other motives, and our next example seemed to as well. Thomas Chatterton was a young man, steeped in Chaucer and fascinated by England's medieval past, which had been destroyed by the Reformation and 18th century modernity. He invented an alter ego named Thomas Rowley, a 15th century monk who wrote poetry in Middle English. And then the alter ego got his lucky break when Chatterton decided to pass off his poems as real, claiming that he had found them in the back room of his uncle's church. He showed the poems to one of his employers, an attorney, who immediately bought them from him. I love that part. The attorney, who probably thought he was ripping off this 15-year-old kid getting a masterpiece for pennies. Chatterton... (laughs) Chatterton then found another poem and another. That's another That's another great detail of the story. You'd think that would have raised some alarm bells to find poems in a church in serial fashion. <laughs> to find one every so often, maybe just in the amount of time it would take you to write a new one. <laughs> and instead, he says he's finding them. Guess what? Here's another old box, and it also happened to have a poem inside by Thomas Rowley. But whatever the scheme was, it worked. Every time Chatterton tried to write a poem as Thomas Chatterton, no one was interested. But as soon as he wrote as the medieval monk Thomas Rowley, everyone wanted them. This story has two endings. In the first one, the unhappy Chatterton went to London trying to make it as a poet for real. He couldn't. He also couldn't find other work, and he was nearing starvation. Finally, he wrote a suicide note in verse. Have mercy, heaven, when here I cease to live, and this last act of wretchedness forgive. He then drank arsenic and died, aged 17. The year was 1770. The second ending is a strange tale of posthumous success for Chatterton as well as Rowley. A couple of decades later, romantic poets discovered Chatterton's work and loved it, and the story of his young life and tragic death appealed to them, as it fit all their views of a doomed, young, misunderstood, poetic, sensitive, passionate hero. Wordsworth called him the marvelous boy. Keats dedicated his poem Endymion to him. Hoax number four. We move ahead a hundred or so years now to the 19th century and the Victorian age, when a French poet named Pierre-Louis claimed that he had found a new Sappho. Her name was Belitis, 
and he said he had found her verse carved inside a tomb in Cyprus. Louise claimed to have translated 143 of these poems from ancient Greek into French. Like Sappho, they were frank and erotic, so frank and erotic, in fact, that they could not have been published in Victorian society, although this was starting to be changed by Baudelaire and Verlaine and Rimbaud. But at the time, they were still mostly off-limits topics. This hoax is one of the best of the hoaxes because the motivation is not just trying to get noticed or trying to make money, although there may have been some of that for Luis, but it's also trying to get around the censors, discussing things like lesbianism and prostitution and sexual awakening. Also, the poetry was good. Debussy was a fan. He set some of them to music. The poems blended some actual verses from Sappho with some inventions of Luis's own, and they were polished and subtle. Luis himself was a pretty successful poet, an avant-garde poet, and he included a lot of extraneous detail that helped with the deception. He listed some poems as untranslated. He wrote up a life of Belitis, including the fictional archaeologist, a German who, Luis claimed, discovered the tomb. And best of all, the poems mirrored the development of a young girl as she went through phases in her life, moving from early sexual exploration to homosexual encounters to her life as a courtesan. The emotions get more complex, and they intersect with events, imagined events in the poet's life, events that Luis invented, of course, but which feel plausible enough, and the emotional responses of Belitis to those events feel real and compelling. Luis knew what he was doing. It deceived even the smartest scholars, at least for a while, but even after the deception was revealed, the poems themselves were good enough that they were still considered important literature. Poems from the hand of Luis in an ancient style, using a narrative device. They could still have merit, even if they were initially being passed off as something authentic, and they weren't. Think of stories with embedded narrators. Stories that begin with a prologue where someone says, I found this manuscript, or I was listening to this storyteller, and this is what he said. Novels do that all the time, impose that kind of a framework on the story, give it a little a little patina, a little spin, a little, little bit different of a frame for us to enjoy the story that comes within. In this particular instance, the initial hoax does not distract or detract. It's part of what makes the poems interesting, gives it a little history, a little extra. Here's a taste of the poem. Taste of the poetry. Not sure how well this holds up, actually, this particular snippet, but here it is. He crushes me so hard that I shall break, frail little creature that I know I am. But once he is in me, nothing else exists, and I could have my four limbs cut away without awakening from my ecstasy. I don't know how good that is in today's world, but maybe it's better in French. But I can see how it would have been refreshing for those who suffered under the heavy hand of society's restrictions, except for the part about four limbs being cut away without awakening from my ecstasy. That seems a little over the top to me. But then again, who am I? I was one of the bad poets, which you can hear all about in our episode on bad poetry. 
Let's take a quick break. First, we'll listen to some of Debussy's Songs of Belitis. Then we'll come back with Edgar Allan Poe, who was both a hoaxer himself and the subject of a hoax. And we'll hear about the literary hoax that tried to cut an empire in half. Clever and so wild. He got up to so much stuff. It's not a surprise to find him here perpetrating a hoax in 1844. And it's no surprise to find him engaged in yet another literary feud at the same time. He had such a contentious presence in the world of newspapers and literary journals. It seems he was always going after someone that he thought was pompous or a bad writer or getting revenge on someone else with his pen. He attacked and was attacked often. And it's fun. I wish Poe were around today, writing letters to the New York Review of Books, criticizing his critics, or maybe writing articles of his own, criticizing authors who then defend themselves. And Poe would then take them down a second time with his exquisite, but also exacting and incisive pen. On to the hoax. This one has some background. In 1835, the New York Sun published an article in which it was claimed that an astronomer named John Herschel had invented a new and powerful telescope, which he immediately pointed at the moon, of course, only to find that the moon was inhabited by humanoid creatures with wings flying around up there on the moon. Everyone was astonished until the hoax was revealed except for one person, Edgar Allan Poe, who was not astonished, but angry, because he believed that the report published by The Sun had plagiarized his short story, The Unparalleled Adventures of One Hans Pfaal. Poe held a grudge for years, until he finally got his revenge against The Sun by tricking them into publishing an account of the explorer Monk Mason, who... Poe claimed, crossed the Atlantic by balloon for the first time. They published the story. Poe had the satisfaction of proving them to be ridiculous once again. And then Poe had yet another example of his literary legacy, as it appears that Jules Verne was inspired by Poe's article to write around the world in 80 days. Poe was himself the posthumous subject of a hoax in 1877. The Kokomo Dispatch, an Indiana literary journal, published a poem called Leonanee. The editor told the story of its origins. He said he had come across the poem while staying at the home of a man in Indiana whose grandparents used to live in Richmond, Virginia, where they kept a hotel. One night, a drunken and disheveled man stayed as a guest. 
leaving without paying his bill and leaving as a sort of payment a book with a poem written on the flyleaf and signed E.A.P. Here's the poem. Leonani, angels named her, and they took the light of the laughing stars and framed her in a smile of white. And they made her hair of gloomy midnight and her eyes of bloomy moonshine, and they brought her to me in the solemn night. In a solemn night of summer, when my heart of gloom blossomed up to greet the comer like a rose in bloom, all forebodings that distressed me I forgot as joy caressed me, lying joy that caught and pressed me in the arms of doom. Only spake the little lisper in the angel tongue, yet I, listening, heard her whisper, songs are only sung here below that they may grieve you, tales but told you to deceive you, so must Leon I need leave you while her love is young. Then God smiled and it was morning, matchless and supreme, Heaven's glory seemed adorning, earth with its esteem. Every heart but mine seemed gifted with the voice of prayer and lifted where my Leonani drifted from me like a dream. Now, as it turns out, this was a complete fabrication. The poem was actually written by a young poet named James Whitcomb Riley, who was famous in my household when I was growing up for his poem, The Passing of the Backhouse which my father liked so well he had it framed and hung on our bathroom wall. One of the two poems I remember him liking, along with the baseball poem, Little Willie. In any case, Riley had been frustrated by not getting his poetry published, and he believed it was simply because he was not famous. Not because his poems weren't any good, so he invented this poem by Poe, which he then persuaded the editor of the Kokomo Dispatch to publish, along with the invented tale. Their problem, these two hoaxers, was they had too much success. The literary world got too excited by the news, and Poe's biographer wanted to see the poem for himself. So Riley and the biographer, or the editor, I should say, John Henderson, panicked. They found an old dictionary and copied the poem out of the flyleaf, watering down the ink to make it look sort of old and faded. The newspaper's rival... The Kokomo Tribune got word of the crazy story and gleefully exposed the poem as a hoax and the editor and Riley as the perpetrators. Riley was denounced. He was fired from his job at the newspaper and no other newspaper would hire him. However, it did make his name and his poetry started to sell. Was it because he was famous or infamous or because... The verses were good. He himself had ensured that he would never know the answer to that question. Although it's too bad he never checked in with my father, who would have told him that it was not because of his name, but because the poem itself had merit. Or, as my father would say, it was pretty good. We're getting closer to the end now. There's a very 20th century style of hoax, which we'll see in our next episode where an author claims a kind of background they don't actually have. This kind of hoax has a pedigree. In 1371, Sir John Mandeville wrote a travel book that was hugely popular. It was about an English knight who left England around 1322 and went to Egypt, Ethiopia, India, Persia, and Turkey. The fascinated public gobbled up these stories of islands where creatures had the bodies of humans and heads like dogs. Or... People with 
mouths so small they had to suck all their food through reeds. And my favorite, a tribe of people who didn't eat or drink anything at all, managing to survive solely through nourishment received from the smell of apples. I tried something similar the other day when I had to fast for 12 hours before a doctor's appointment. It was scheduled for the morning, which is not a problem for me, as I often don't eat breakfast. Except the problem for me is coffee. I usually get up at four, read and write and record these shows and have a couple of coffees along the way. But this appointment was at 11, and I could feel myself getting itchy and angry as my caffeine addiction started rearing its angry head, took its grip around my brain. It made me feel like my head was filled with a dry sponge. My wife passed by with her mug of coffee, and I just stooped over it and inhaled, hoping that I could draw in some caffeine that way through the odor. Of course, I couldn't. And of course, when I got to the doctor, all my responses to her questions were tainted by my dull state. Do you have any headaches, Jack? Oh, all the time. <laughs> Are you ever tired? Exhausted. <laughs> How many alcoholic beverages do you drink in a week? Not enough. How many caffeinated drinks do you drink each day? Well, now, that's interesting. Today, the answer is zero, thanks to you. And my poor doctor said, well, well, you know, even when you're fasting, you can have black coffee or black tea, just nothing with milk or anything. It was all I could do not to throttle her. Why did you tell me that before? <laughs> anyway, the smell of apples. What a great diet. I hope the breatharians enjoy reading Sir John Mandeville. Mandeville helped deceive his readers by including highly accurate descriptions of the, ge the geography and other true facts about the locations, masking the implausible. His readers... Loved it, maybe because they were steeped in a culture of other legends and myths and religious imagery, maybe because they were naturally afraid of the other and ready to believe anything about strangers, maybe because they wanted to believe a good story, maybe they didn't really believe it, they just enjoyed it. Sir John Mandeville was such a good fabricator that Sir Thomas Brown, writing 300 years later, said that Sir John Mandeville was, quote, the greatest liar of all time, end quote. But Brown didn't know exactly how good he was, because in fact, Sir John Mandeville never even existed. We don't know who wrote the travel narrative under his name, although it is now believed that it was originally written in French. We have a few Jonathan Swift hoaxes, but he deserves his own episode, so we're going to save those hoaxes for another time. Let's move on. We all know how laws remain on the books forever, right? In such and such county, if you spit on the sidewalk, you're required to pay a fine of 25 cents or two chickens. Stuff like that. We marvel at how backwards this society was or how quaint and it's best when we can say, and these laws are still on the books, right? 
You've heard these, right? You've maybe seen a viral email that lists them all. Guess what? It's still against the law in such and such town to kiss your wife on the lips. That kind of thing. Well, in the 18th century, a man named Peters was living in America, but he was forced to leave when the revolution broke out. He was an Englishman. So when he got back to England, he wrote up a pamphlet describing all the crazy backward laws that had started with the Puritans and were still on the books in Connecticut. Every male was required to have his hair cut round under a cap. You put the cap on, cut the hair around it. So everybody looked, had that crazy haircut. Married persons either had to live together or they would be imprisoned. No one was allowed to run on the Sabbath day or even go for a walk in your own garden. You could only walk to go to and from church. And punishments for all these crimes included whipping, having your ears cut off, having your tongue burned, or death. England devoured the list. What a backwards country. Still practicing these crazy laws with these wild punishments. No one seemed to notice that Peters had also claimed some other fantastical things in his history of Connecticut, like a parade of frogs four miles long, or a river that ran so fast it could carry a crowbar downstream. He made those things up, and he made up the laws, too. Just made them up. <laughs> Poor Connecticut. Forever smeared as a backwater in the eyes of the English. Maria Monk smeared a different country in 1836. She wrote a book that claimed all kinds of illicit activity was happening at a convent in Montreal. Priests and nuns were traveling back and forth through a secret tunnel, having sex and having babies. The babies were baptized, then strangled and dumped in a lime pit in the basement of the convent. Maria Monk said she was herself one of those nuns for seven years, but she couldn't bear the idea of losing her child, so after she became impregnated by a priest, she had fled to safety. Protestants in New York and Montreal demanded an, an investigation, which turned up nothing. But, said the president, Protestants, aha! That's because the investigators were secretly Jesuits, disguised as Protestants. Hashtag witch hunt. Hashtag fake news. So, another investigation was conducted, this time by a newspaper editor who went with a, a team of verified, authentic Protestants. Permission was granted. The editor found some flaws in the story, but he wasn't permitted to see the nuns' rooms or the basement. So he returned and declared that the investigation was unfinished. This caused a stir. So he was invited back and permitted the second time to see the entire convent. And he concluded that it was unlikely that Maria Monk had ever even been to the convent because her descriptions were so inaccurate of the convent's interior. Maria Monk, it turns out, was most likely a prostitute in Montreal who had spent years in an asylum for wayward girls. Later, she was arrested after a man had paid her for sex and she picked his pocket, <laughs> apparently believing that he wouldn't turn her in, or maybe thinking that it didn't matter that she could lie her way out of it. She was, after all, one of the great liars of her age. 
and her book remained in print well into the 20th century. Here's a hoax that reminds me of Borges, a great collector of books, the Count of Fortsis, maybe the greatest, or at least the most singular collector in all of the history of antiquarianism. His passion was to collect books that had only one copy in existence. If he ever discovered that there was a duplicate, he immediately sold his copy. Didn't want it. Only wanted one-of-a-kind books. By the end of his long life, he had amassed a fine collection of 52 works, 52 books that only he owned. Then, in 1839, he died. His heirs didn't really share his passion, and they fought over who would own such a valuable collection, so they decided to put the works up for auction. A catalog describing the books was printed, and booksellers all over the world went crazy. 52 books never before seen, only described in this catalog, and extremely valuable. The descriptions were enticing. They all descended, they all traveled to Belgium, they descended on the small town in Belgium where the Count of Fortsis, the greatest book collector in history, had lived. At the same time, there was some outrage. The Belgian government sent a representative who was planning to try to buy the entire collection and keep it in the country. Why would you split this up? It was a Belgian national treasure. Thanks to this count, this collector. But here was the problem. When the book collectors went to the auction and tried to find it on the Rue de l'Eglise, which was the address according to the auction catalog where the, where the auction would be held, no one could find the street. Apparently, the street didn't exist. Then a newspaper article came out while the collectors were there, announcing that the town had decided to purchase the entire collection for its public library. So half the collectors went home disheartened. But the other half stayed why not go visit the public library and at least see the collection? Even if you can't buy the books, might be fun to see them. So they tried to find the public library, and then they learned that the town did not even have a public library. And when they asked around, started asking more questions, no one in the town had ever heard of the Count of Fortsis. He didn't exist either. His heirs, they were all made up too. How did this happen? Who wrote the catalog? As it turned out, it was a local bookseller who was playing a practical joke on all of his colleagues. He had done some research, had figured out exactly what books would be of most interest, and had written the catalog himself. Here's one with potentially huge consequences. I love this one. Very old. In the 8th or 9th century, someone wrote a work called The Donation of Constantine, Constantine, which purportedly was written by the emperor Constantine the Great 400 years earlier. The first part of the document told the story of how I, the emperor Constantine, was cured of leprosy after being baptized in Rome by Pope Sylvester I. The second part says, I'm so pleased... 
I'm giving up my reign over Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Jerusalem. Those can all go in the hands of the Pope, who can now wear a crown and a purple cloak, just like me. He can, he can own half my empire, empire and reign as an emperor because I was cured of leprosy and I'm so grateful. Imagine that. Imagine if it had worked. When this document's found and everyone says, oh no, all this time we've been living in a, as an empire when it turns out the Pope was supposed to rule over half of these lands. The document was easily pointed out as a fake by Renaissance scholars who used philology to point out that the Latin was all wrong for its era, its purported era. Nevertheless, we don't know who exactly wrote it. Someone who wanted the Pope to be in charge, presumably. Was it someone close to the Pope or someone tangentially related? We still don't know. However, we do know that the document had no effect other than as a curiosity, maybe roused some rabble. Nothing happened. Finally, we're going to end today with a good one, with a very literary pedigree. Robert Drury, who in 1729 published his journal. He had had quite a life. Forty years earlier, he'd been shipwrecked off the coast of Madagascar. His shipmates were all slaughtered but he himself was enslaved by the islanders, fighting in local wars and getting married before finally escaping on a slave ship and heading back to England. Everyone believed that this was true throughout the 18th century. It was not just an adventure story, but kind of a guidebook or resource for details about Madagascar and was used as such for a hundred years. In the 19th century, the account came into question the speculation grew that there was no Robert Drury. He had never been shipwrecked. And in fact, his journal had been written by none other than Daniel Defoe, who of course later became famous with an even better tale of shipwreck and survival, the early novel Robinson Crusoe. Except, except now we think Robert Drury did exist. A 20th century archaeologist re-examined the book and compared it with what was known of Madagascar at the time in England and declared that it was far too accurate for Defoe to have invented it. It must have been the journal of someone who had actually been there. Today, we're still uncertain. Either Defoe was preternaturally gifted or had some other source or wasn't even the author Maybe it wasn't Defoe, maybe it was somebody else who had been to Madagascar and come back with this invented tale of shipwreck and survival. Or maybe, maybe the simplest explanation is the best. Maybe this was the one example we have of all the examples we've looked at today of a factual narrative that was mistaken for a hoax, or at least the only one we know about yet. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. We're not going to hoax you here, are we, Gar? 
Oh, there we go. My producer making his little sounds. Of course, we're not going to hoax anyone. We'll be back with some Mike Palindrome soon in response to a special listener email. We'll have some other goodies for you, too. Remember to sign up at patreon.com slash literature for some free gift giving for some lucky, lucky prize winners. Those aren't hoaxes either. They're genuine tokens of our genuine gratitude. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.